However, standing by right now is the one and the only, Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the Million Dollar Man. After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. So right before I called 911, I thought she'd fallen asleep. Kind of shook her a little bit to, to wake her up, and she did not respond. I don't go down to my, go to my grave testifying or whatever, swearing that Davey was not on drugs. If he was on drugs, the way Brett says, how does, I mean, how great does that make Davey? Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? You go ahead and chop me. Give me a big chop. I'll sell. I'll give you my whole chest and everything. And then I'll look at you like this, and then I'll punch you right in the mouth as hard as I can. (laughs) Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Primetime with Sean Mooney. I hope that uh, this episode finds you healthy and safe and i hope your family as well as uh, all your loved ones in your life and friends and i uh, want to thank you once again for tuning in uh, to another episode here with uh, us on ptsm uh, a lot going on we've uh, just come off a great episode that i really enjoyed uh, it's it's one of those that you know uh, perhaps a guest you you didn't know that much about uh, maybe didn't uh, maybe never even uh, heard his name before but then once you start listening and then you realize, oh, my goodness, man, this guy really had an impact on the way uh, the world of professional wrestling uh, and pe- the way people follow it, uh, you know, uh, was was shaped. And that would certainly be the case with John Arezzi, who was our, our guest this past week. Uh, John, uh, we had uh, an interesting, uh, you know, crossing paths, an interesting history with each other. Uh, it turns out that. Uh, my first job in uh, entertainment production, whatever you want to call it, was working for Major League Baseball Productions. You probably know that by now if you've listened to this podcast. But it turns out that, you know, and it bugged me whenever I'd hear John's name because it just sounded so familiar to me. And I know that he, you know, had been involved in professional wrestling, but it just I kept thinking there's just more to it than that. There's a reason why that name is, is familiar. And it turns out that John worked at Major League Baseball Productions at the same time I was there when I was just starting out. It was, you know, my first job. I was at the, you know, the entry-level position at that time, which they called them viewers or loggers. We would log uh, tapes of baseball games all day long. That's the way they did it back then uh, for This Week in Baseball, the show that Mel Allen hosted. And John got an opportunity. He had worked in minor league baseball and got an opportunity to go to work for the production company. And uh, if you listen to the episode, you know the whole story. But it's just just amazing the way we, we you know cross paths. It's it's kind of like how Raven and I uh, knew each other from the very beginning, uh, doing that uh, that uh, wrestling show that uh, I did uh, called Light Moments in Sports. That episode that uh, at the Monster Factory, and and, and uh, he was one of the people there. So it's just uh, crazy how life works that way. But I hope you enjoyed the episode because, as I said, John uh, did have an impact on this industry. Uh, the fact that um, he was one of the first to do a radio show that was about wrestling and kind of turned into this uh, a dirt sheet of the radio waves out there. And then also uh, the, the fact that he was involved in putting together one of the, you know, one of the first uh, wrestling conventions, which are very common these days. We haven't been able to have one for a while because of the situation that's going on in our country right now, but they've become very popular. I'm sure uh, if you're a listener, you have attended one. And, uh, and, and John was one of the first people to do it, the uh, Weekend of Champions, and just uh, had all of these uh, great uh, wrestlers at this uh, you know, uh, hotel, and uh, he, he's one of the first to do it, and it's turned into quite an industry. So uh, that was just a fascinating episode. And uh, we're following that up by uh, someone on the uh, kind of the other end of the spectrum, but still somebody who is, uh, you know, documenting the professional wrestling uh, ranks uh, these days and uh, uh, how, uh, you know, we, we uh, take in and, and interview these people. Uh, it, it, we have uh, Chris Van Vliet, 
who uh, I love uh, talking to some of these young broadcasters that are coming up because they're the new era. People like Corey Graves and uh, you know some of these other young people. Uh, Joe Galley is a guy that comes to mind who's with the NWA. And a lot of very talented people. And uh, it's, it's fun to watch. Uh, it gives me great hope to think that they're going to be you know, going on and, and uh, doing their own thing and, and changing the way things are done. Uh, Corey is certainly one of those people. And uh, Chris Van Vliet, who is uh, a very, very successful influencer, a vlogger. Uh, I, I, I don't know what is the correct term these days, but uh, he's got a huge following on YouTube. He's got over 250,000 subscribers uh, to his channel as they uh, they call it, and it's growing more and more every day. And uh, he's he, many, many, many of his uh, personalities that uh, he features on his show are, are from the world of professional wrestling. Now, he's also done a lot with entertainment, and uh, as we know, that line has, has blurred between mainstream and uh, the world of professional wrestling, and Chris is right in the thick of things, and... Uh, He's really taken off, and he's done stuff for AEW, and I assume that, uh, who knows, you may see him uh, with the WWE or one of the other organizations uh, as uh, we move forward into the future. But I uh, really enjoyed my, my conversation with uh, Chris. You can hear that coming up. Uh, hey, you know what? Let's just get to it, all right? Let's just get to this conversation with Chris Van Vliet. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, folks, my guest today has become one of the premier sports entertainment interviewers out there. There are a few stars in the world of professional wrestling uh, he has not interviewed, and if he hasn't done so yet, it is just a matter of time. And because people like to watch him or whoever might be next to him in front of a camera, he has a massive a following on YouTube. His YouTube channel currently entertaining a quarter of a million subscribers and is approaching 60 million views of his videos, and folks... He is just getting started. Chris Van Vliet, welcome to Primetime. How are you? Oh, Sean. Thank you so much for having me because you are the premier interviewer of sports entertainment stars. So maybe I can be like number two on that list or something. Oh, please, please. When I have 250,000 followers, and by the way, uh, I don't know if you checked this morning, but you're at 251, dude. Okay, wow. Thousand. Okay. And as we uh, we mentioned before, and we might as well tell folks, we had a little technical difficulty starting this out. So uh, I have repeated every single word of what I said before because it was just great, great stuff. Yeah. Was- but uh, <laughs> over your shoulder, though, there is the YouTube plaque that they send people. And I was surprised. I have to tell you, I'm surprised that, okay, I get 100,000. That's phenomenal. But then they don't give you another one till you get a million? Yeah, so it, there's three. There's the hundred thousands, the silver, a million is the gold, and then ten million subscribers is the the diamond button. So I started my YouTube channel in 2011. So it took me like eight years to get this one. So to get a million, I'm at a quarter million now. So that times four, that'll be like 2038 ish that I'll be getting that one from the home. Chris, you made it. Chris, <laughs> give us a sign. Move a finger. You made a million. <laughs> you're still the, well, you may still be doing it. I mean, you could do this forever, right? Well, I, I, I hope so. I mean, th- this is the interesting thing about this, especially the way we're doing this now. You know, like yeah. this didn't exist five, ten, certainly not 15 years ago. Who knows what will be happening? And as we get into the – we're in the roaring 20s now. Yeah. I don't know if it doesn't feel very roaring right now, but uh, who knows what'll, what we'll be doing in the 2030s. Well, I'll tell you, you know, since we're we're going down that track there, and uh, you know, I really do think this is a new frontier, and I have I have lived through a couple of them. Uh, I, I wasn't around, although some may think when uh, you know radio went to television, but <laughs> but I did uh, witness the cable, uh, you know, era come in, and I just remember this was we're talking, you know, early '80s when uh you know they had some of these little cable systems they figured out they could wire homes and you could suddenly go from the you know the three networks maybe a couple independents in town to suddenly 500 yeah and people were just saying oh who the, who's going to want to watch all that tv and the networks said you know we're not worried about these guys well uh look what happened now they own the networks yep. and i really think that now we're witnessing 
a new frontier. And I, yeah. I hope young people, because they get frustrated about going to the business and, you know, we see what local news is doing and you've worked there. I do it still. Yeah. That it is a, it is a dying, uh, it is a dying business. But, uh, you know, don't you get that from young people who say, well, what's next? Well, it's, it's interesting because you know, I've been in broadcasting now for 15 years and I'm honored to say that you and I have a, a kind of a similar path in that, uh, you know, that we, our background is in broadcasting, our backgrounds yeah. in local news, but broadcasting by definition doesn't really exist anymore in the world that we now live in, in 2020. It's now narrow casting. It's now yeah. niche casting. Yeah, it used absolutely. to be take a wad of spaghetti, throw it at the wall and a few pieces will stick. Yeah. Now it's, I will go on to YouTube or I'll go on to whatever platform it is, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and I will type in the exact thing that I want to see from the exact person that I want to see it from. Yeah. Well, and the big change is, uh, is the fact that, you know, when I grew up and through my professional career, uh, basically the networks told you what you were going to watch. And if you yeah. wanted to tune in, of course you had that choice, but remember must see TV now. Yeah. That's completely flipped. Now it's like you t you show me what I want to see, and you better make it when I want to see it. Otherwise, I have mm, five billion choices to go somewhere else. And yep. that, I think, has really uh, changed the entertainment industry. Well, you know, there's the gatekeepers are no longer there. Anyone yeah. can start a YouTube channel. Anyone can start a podcast, which is both the best and worst thing about it, sure. you know. Uh, that anyone can go out and literally type in a few things and make it happen. But you no longer need to have the backing of a major network or cable company to go out there and, 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 you know, really make an impact. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is that, uh, but it's, it's, you know, natural selection though. I mean, the fact that what's great about it is that anybody, anybody can get a microphone, anybody can get on Skype. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in the end, it's what is most entertaining to people. And that's where you'll see, you know, people can broadcast and do their little podcast forever and have, you know, 30 people see it a week. But then you have people, you know, like you that, uh, as they not, I don't even know if they use the term vlogger anymore. Is it influencer is the more correct term? I don't know. But, guy with but, the camera is what I call myself, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But the point is, and you're very humble about it, but, uh, the point is, is that the best will always rise to the top and that, and that's yeah. the way it's going to be. And, the thing that I find really interesting about it is if it's interesting to you, chances are it's probably going to be interesting to a whole bunch of other people out there. And my two big passions outside of broadcasting, I love broadcasting. That was always my dream growing up to be on television. But my two main passions are pro wrestling as a fan and bass fishing. And I have mm -hmm. somehow taken both of those completely narrowed down niche interests and turn them into something that I'm doing online, both with my YouTube interviews and my podcast with wrestling. And I own a bass fishing company called Woo Tungsten. Yeah. That's how you pronounce it. That's Woo right. Tungsten. Is so Rick Flair on the board of directors? By the way, I'm just asking. <laughs> he should be. Actually, don't He's let Rick Flair know about this. I don't want him to like <laughs> sue us oh. for using the word woo. Yeah. But if you do a commercial... Right. Yeah. <laughs> but if, if, He's if I guy. can, you know, if I can get by with these tiny niche audiences, you know, if you're interested in whatever you're interested in, if you're interested in peanut butter, run with it, make a YouTube channel. There's going to be millions of other people out there interested in that same thing. Yeah. Well, when you see Rick though, and I, I know you've uh, interviewed him a, a few times now, uh, that just you got to have him just, can you do me one little favor? Will you say woo? Tungsten for I just, I'm, I'm really worried though that if I say, "Hey Rick, I have this company called yeah. Wu Tungsten," he'll be like, "It's called what?" Yeah. Oh, really? I think uh, yes. I have that uh, patented. Uh, yeah, I'll have my I have my lawyer actually do yeah. that for you. What's the so name of it again? Uh, okay, uh, he won't hear it from me. I promise. <laughs> but uh, you you mentioned uh, growing up and and folks, uh, Chris grew up in Pickering, Ontario, which if you don't know is near Toronto. But yeah. near the water. And so is that where the fishing, uh, you know, started? Did you have, uh, you know, relatives or, uh, you know, somebody in your family who loved to fish? Is that where that started? Well, we grew up like five minutes from Lake Ontario, which was a great place to go and fish. But it, it just started. We had a neighbor across the street that had 
a cottage about an hour away in the Kawarthas for anyone that's familiar with the Ontario area. There was on uh, Sturgeon Lake and we went up there. I was four years old. All the other kids were 10 and 12 years old and I had nothing to do. So my parents just kind of stuck me out on the end of the dock with a life jacket and a rod and said, here, we'll watch you do this for a little while. It'll entertain you. And I caught my first rock bass and pardon the pun, I was hooked and that was it. And I was all in on fishing so much so that I was doing it. There were some years in my teenage years where I was bringing a rod to school, fishing in the creek behind my high school during the lunch break. I fished like 150, 160 days a year. Wow. So, I mean, there really is a message here. Um, the fact that you have stuck by doing what you want to do with your passion that a lot of us never do. And they, they kind of take a safer route or they say, you know, I got to do, go to school and study accounting because my parents say it's going to be a decent living. And, uh, in a lot of ways, if you want to pursue that, if you do want to live the life like you live, and, uh, I know early on I was the same way. I just could not see myself in a cubicle. Yeah. And, and, and I just felt that, you know, I've got to just go for this. And, uh, I, you know, it's uh, cliche. I guess people hear it all the time from us, but the people that do succeed or do, I, who are, who I see are the happiest are the ones that actually take that chance. Yeah. For me, it was, I was studying communications in college uh-huh. only because communications class in high school was the fun class where we like basically made TV every week. So I took communication studies in college, which was fun. And I had a great time with my friends, but it wasn't like really get making roads to like get a career out of it. So I basically had this epiphany in my senior year where I, I, it just hit me like a ton of bricks that it wasn't going to just be fun and games when we graduated. I wasn't just going to be able to do, to decide, do I feel like going to class today? Now let's just go have a beer instead. And I was going to have to work for the next 40 to 50 years. Yeah. And that's when I started, you know, trying to put the odds in my favor and really betting on myself and the things I was interested in. So I reached out to every radio station, every TV station in my college town and basically said, hey, here's who I am. Uh, I, I, I'd just love to come in and see how it's done in the real world. And my whole goal was I didn't want a job that I hated going to. That was the bare minimum. I didn't want a job that I hated. Yeah. So uh, I was fortunate that uh, there was a volunteer-run TV station, a community TV station that brought me in. You get to work VTR and work audio, and I was a floor director. Uh, there was a radio station that brought me in on a street team, and then a news radio station said, well, we don't really take on, take on volunteers. It's against our uh, union, but how would you like a job as a board operator? Mm-hmm. I went, oh, Sure. Job. They said it only pays uh, eight dollars an hour. I said, "Well, that's eight dollars more than I thought right. I was going to make." Yeah. And that—that's where it kind of began for me. I just—I just didn't want to hate going to work every day because so many people can't even enjoy their Sunday because they know that Monday's coming up next. Yeah. Well, and uh, you know, good thing you were willing though to say, "Okay, I'll be a board op," because I get people come up to me, "How do I? How do I become a talent?" <laughs> okay, you get coffee. Uh, can you do that? Can you just do anything? You know, my first job uh, was with Major League Baseball Productions. You know, I got very fortunate that they happened to shoot a show here in Tucson where I grew up and, uh, you know, got the opportunity to go to New York and work for them. But the, the job was sitting in a chair eight hours plus a day and watching baseball games on two monitors and logging shots. And that it was that was that was the you know job description. They gave you no indication you might be able to do something from here. Yeah. But uh, just the opportunity to do it, and it turned out to be a phenomenal place for just, somebody who's just, just getting into broadcasting. I loved the energy of walking into a yeah. real TV station, a real radio station, and just knowing that you know you push a button and you're on for the whole world to see you. And there was just this real energy about that. So when I graduated from college, I knew I needed to line up an internship, which would hopefully give me a demo reel that I could hopefully, you know, figure out a way to pitch that to somebody. And nobody was going to take on, take me on as an intern because it wasn't affiliated with my school. I was basically doing this on my own. So there was a station about an hour away from my hometown. This was in Peterborough, Ontario. So 60 miles each way was the drive. 
And I found the email for the general manager of the station. And I said, hey, you know, I'm on uh, spring break next week. I'm going to be in Peterborough. I would love to talk to you about a possible internship. This was, of course, a total lie. I wasn't going to be there. I was just trying to put the odds in my favor. And he said, well, if you're going to be here, you know, come on in. We'll at least you know, have a conversation with you. And he looked at my resume, which was now padded with the things I had done in my senior year and said, we don't usually take on people that aren't getting like a course credit for this. But what the heck? Yeah. When you graduate, come on in here. And two weeks into my internship, I was on TV. Like I was on TV as an intern, basically filling in as a reporter for them. And it kind of just all went from there. It was the most exciting thing. But it was also so exciting because I created this for myself. Well, and you mentioned uh, just taking that chance. You know, you got in hold of the general manager and said, I'm going to be in town. And I'm always amazed. And I bet if we ask, and you know, not like the example you just gave, but a lot of successful people, when they wanted to get that first job, they will have a story to tell you about something that happened because they just took a chance. I did the same thing. I had, you know, uh, when they shot that show here, and I had a professor tell me, oh, yeah, they're, they're shooting, but they've, they've already hired everybody. I said, who's the guy? Who's the, who was the guy that contacted She gave me the phone number, and yeah. I got this guy on the phone, Gary Cohen, um, still friends to this day, and I just would not stop talking. And he said, well, we have everybody. We need. I said, do you have somebody who's from the city of Tucson, who knows the city, who knows everybody? I didn't know everybody, but, uh, you know, who, who you know has all this experience. He's like, all right, uh, just come down. We're staying at this hotel. So he like met me down. I, I put on this stupid fat tie, you know, with I had the resume like padded with a plastic sheet over it, and I just wouldn't stop talking. He's like, "All right, all right, I'm sure we can use you," and, and talk my way into that. And then anytime anybody came out, I gave him a resume. So, uh, you know, th- the thing about not giving up and being persistent, it still works today. Yeah. There are people that just are dying for somebody to dress halfway decent. Uh, be polite and have some ambition. And I'm yeah. telling you, that's, that's your, your first giant step. So, uh, you know, there you have it, guys. Uh, Chris, thank you very much. I think we've just given advice to millions of people. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, it wasn't going to start that way. I didn't want to go off on that path, but I'm, I'm really glad we did because yeah, me too. Uh, there's a big span of decades between us. But like you said, we follow different, uh, very similar paths. And uh, I'm both of us wouldn't give up, I think, is what it what it really comes down to. And I think that that's just the moral of whatever it is that you're interested in. There's a path out there. And if somebody else is doing the thing that you want to do, that just means that it's possible yeah. for you to also do it. Yeah, instead of being discouraged. Okay, so <laughs> we shouldn't be talking about wrestling. A lot of my fans uh, uh, fans <laughs> of the program really uh, want to hear about uh, all of your, your journey. But before we even get there, though, we've got – I love following this path because – um, you really blazed your trail in entertainment, uh, entertainment interviews. I, I, I don't know how, you know, I, I know you did the show in Canada and, um, that must have given you a lot of experience. It was ended up being canceled, but was that your path? Because once you got in front of a camera, you said, Hey, I might be able to do this. And you say, I want to, I want to be involved in, in the entertainment industry, not necessarily news. I, I wanted to be a TV host. That's what I really wanted to be. Like I, I, it's going to sound so cheesy, but I looked up to Roger Lodge, who hosted uh, Blind Date. I, oh, yeah. I thought that show was amazing. And, I, of course, I loved Joe Rogan on Fear Factor. And Dean Cain hosted Ripley's Believe It or Not. Those are the people that I looked up to. And I said, I want to host a show like that. And the, the path I saw to get on TV was by working at a news station. Mm-hmm. So that internship turned into a job. And here I was at. 22 years old as a reporter and then also I became a weekend anchor but I'm reporting on like drownings and I'm reporting on car accidents and also in a small town you're reporting on the new stop sign you know right. at the intersection the cow, the cow is loose <laughs> wandering through town I had an assignment one time where it was like this uh this retirement home just got a cat I'm like oh okay and they're like and the cat makes them feel good I'm like uh, and so it was just for me, it was like, I'm so was that happy. The first I'm Emmy? Was that the first Emmy? I'm just asking. <laughs> yeah. How'd you know? <laughs> for, for me, I was, I was happy to be on TV, but I didn't want to be 22, 23 years old and reporting on that type of stuff yet. 
So I just started auditioning for TV shows and I went to an open casting call for Much Music, which is kind of like the MTV of Canada. And they liked me at that open casting call. I didn't end up getting that job, but it really instilled in me that like I had the look and the style that they were looking for. And I knew that eventually I would be able to get something from that. And it took a while, it took almost a year, but I ended up getting this job hosting a show for MTV2 in Vancouver. And that was like, this is amazing. I went from reporting on stop signs and drownings to now I'm like my first day of work. I followed the rapper Chingy around for a day. And then I was reviewing video games the next week and reviewing movies. And it was like, this is what I want to be doing. This is stuff I would do for free. And now you guys are going to pay me for this. Yeah, that's uh, really incredible that, uh, you know, how things happen. You kind of get on a, a track. And uh, when you started doing celebrity interviews, and I don't know if it started when you, you know, were doing uh, the work in Canada, but a lot of them involved junket interviews. Yeah. And and people, if you don't know what uh, what they are or how they work, if there's a movie or some like even a television show, they will have what they call like these junket interviews and they'll bring the stars in for whatever it might be at a hotel. For example, they've got a couple of hotel rooms and, and at least back in the day you'd there and you'd have your tape and they'd have two cameras set up. You'd have two yep. tapes and they put them in the decks. It's a little different now, but I imagine the, the way it works and you got like three minutes. Uh, what did that experience do for you? Because, you know, a lot of people see how you are with, with the, the people that you interview and you have this rapport and you, you see, uh, in many, many cases, if you watch, uh, Chris's interviews, you see that, that he develops this rapport with people. It's very natural. But I'm, I, I imagine at the beginning of doing this, what was that experience like and what did you learn from it? I, so everyone has seen a junket interview, whether they actually know it or not. It's those interviews where the interviewer's on one side and the person you're interviewing is on another side and they cut between the cameras. So everyone has seen one of these. The thing I learned and it was such a big lesson to learn early on is the interview begins when the door opens. The interview begins the second you walk in the door. And I think that too many people walk in and their energy is kind of one way and they shake hands and then they sit down and then they kind of, wait for the, okay, we're good now? Okay. And then they start the interview. And I realized early on that the interview begins with the energy that you walk into the room with. So I've kind of carried that with me, that lesson with me throughout my career that like, it begins from the second you make eye contact with that person. And three minute interview is not an easy thing to do. No. These junket interviews are so quick. It's basically like a question a minute if you're lucky. Right. So I would have to like figure out, okay, what's a good opening question? All right, let's get that one down. What's a good kind of middle question? And what's a good question to end things with? And that also really helped me with the structure of these interviews. I will say that I'm so happy that the interviews now that I'm able to do on my podcast and YouTube channel are 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 minutes long because you can actually get into a conversation that way. Right. I feel like the junket interviews, it's kind of like ask a question and then hope you get something decent out of it. Yeah, in that three minutes. Because yeah. that's it. You're done. Thank you. But uh, I, I would think, though, when you do a bunch of those, you you do learn a lot. And, uh, you know, of course, you look at your highlight reel, you see all that awesome stuff, you know, the fist pump with Denzel Washington and all <laughs> that. But uh, I have to imagine there had to be a few along the way because – these people are doing, they do who knows how many in a day. They just keep them rolling oh, in and yeah. they get the it's same questions over and over again. Were there some yeah. that didn't go well that that stand out to you that no matter what you did or maybe you said something wrong, it just didn't go well? I'd say that most of the time the junket interviews go fairly well. They know there's a camera there. They know what you're trying to kind of hit on. They're trying to promote something. Um the thing I also learned was to just go for it. And if it doesn't go well, the only people that will ever see it are you and that person and the camera operators and the audio operators in the room. And that's it. So yeah. I kind of learned early on, like, just go for it. Just push yeah. the envelope. And if it does work out, you've got an amazing moment Gold. for TV. Yeah. Yeah. And if it doesn't work out, eh, it's kind of move on. But I had some, I've had some moments that didn't go as well as I thought. My first interview with The Rock, for example, I was trying to create a moment. I thought that my interview with The Rock was going to be like, 
like a Michael Cole interview with The Rock, like where he's calling me names and, you know, yeah. you know sticking something on my head. Or, head and, right. <laughs> and I was like, uh, and this is on YouTube, so you can totally look at this. But I was like, oh, so what's like, what's the art to, uh, to stare down? Because he was preparing for his first match with John Cena, WrestleMania 28. And I'm like, what's the, what's the, like the, the real, like, how do you really like get into a stare down? And I'm like, you know, hoping that he's going to come in and do a stare down with me and really setting this up. And he's like, I don't know. It's, it's about having that intensity and, you know, looking someone in the eye and, you know, just being in that moment. And I'm like, okay. So like, but you know, you really got to be in this moment here, you know, like you're really, and Show he's me. Like, yeah, yeah, just, yeah, really just be intense, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, and it wasn't a bad moment. I just, I think I had this idea in my mind that it was going to be this amazing, great moment. The rock was going to be like, Oh, let me show you what a stare down looks like. And you know, like, come here, you. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I, you know, I haven't heard what the any... rock is cooking. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's what I wanted. But then, which is interesting. I've interviewed the rock a bunch of times and mm. I, I definitely teed the rock up to give me an, it, it doesn't matter moment, which is in my demo reel there. Right. Right. And in the moment I'm teeing this up, I'm like, I hope that this works because this will be the coolest thing if it does work. And then when it did work, I was like, oh, my God, this is great. Yeah. Well, I also love the question when you ask him about playing football and if things had been different. And he's like, hey, look at you coming with the picks. You know, that was, uh, you know, we all have to admit that we when when somebody says to you, that's that's a great question. I've never really thought about that. You know, like, hmm. That was good. Well, and I think that that's, that's what's so good about The Rock. I think The Rock has this amazing star quality about him where even though he knows he's, you know, one of the biggest stars in the world and he knows that the attention is on him during this interview, yeah. he wants to just kind of help, like, help you have some of that too. And I've seen him do the, that's a great question to a bunch of my friends. And I'm like, wasn't that so cool? Like, I'll ask them after, I'm like, isn't that so cool when he does yeah. that thing? Because he, he just knows. He gets that, like, the moment's also your moment too, but but it does involve a bit of risk taking. You do have to have yeah. that. I'm going to put it out there because you know we've 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 seen interviews where you you've seen people you know that they think this is an awesome question, and then the guy like you know what kind of question is that? What do you ask yeah. me? That? And then where, where do you go from? There's like no no chair to hide under, no table. Publicist is like, you ready? Okay, let's wrap. <laughs> right, yeah. right. But uh, uh, really, I mean, I don't know how many hundreds, but were you always was wrestling you know, when you, you know, would think about the stars that you wanted to meet? Was that always something with you? And, and your, you know, did this start early when you were a kid that was always this thing that you were into? Yeah. So my first introduction to wrestling was in the late 80s. I was, you know, four and five and six years old. And it just happened to be on in my grandparents' house. Not that my grandpa was a huge wrestling fan, but it was Saturday night and wrestling was on. And I would just kind of take in the larger than life superstars, Macho Man and Ultimate Warrior, but also, you know, Repo Man and Coco Beware. And it was just a thing we watched when we went to my grandparents. But it was like in the late 90s, the Attitude Era, that I got sucked into it big time. And I was actually an amateur wrestler in high school. And when you're a wrestler in high school, you're told... You can't like that pro wrestling stuff. That stuff's fake. What we do in here, this is this is the real thing. And I, you know, I abided by that for the first few years of my high school wrestling career. But I had a friend of mine who was so into wrestling, and I ended up just starting to watch along with him. And I just got sucked in, and I started watching everything. And when I become passionate about something, I dive all the way into it. And I immediately started becoming a backyard wrestler with my friends, which I, I don't recommend, but it's, you yeah. know, it was a thing we did. And I wanted to be a pro wrestler so much so that I went to, I got trained or I started training at a wrestling school in Toronto. And that was really the path that I wanted to be on this. I was about 20 years old and I was going to college and also going to wrestling school and you just couldn't do both. Yeah. Something had to yeah. give there. And I decided that, I should probably get my college education. Wrestling will always be there if I, you know, really want to go back to it. And I'm kind of glad the way it worked out because I still get to do that passion of mine, which is broadcasting and still have my, I dip my toe into the wrestling world. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a ring announcer for a few different independent federations. And, you know, I, I've done quite a few wrestling interviews. So it's cool that I still have like the broadcasting passion, but still get to like, 
do the thing that I enjoy on the side here. So how did that start, though, where you were, uh, you know, started, you were doing your other job. You had a, a job that you were doing uh, quite successfully. When did the uh, interviews with the wrestlers start? Was it along the same lines of doing what you're doing and then said, hey, well, you know, these guys are from the wrestling world. I might as well post this one uh, from yeah. kind of a different way. Or how did that all all start? So I did my first wrestling interview in 2007. It was this that MTV2 Canada show that I was hosting in Vancouver. I interviewed Bobby Lashley, and I was just like, hold on a second. Just because I'm on TV, I now have access to these wrestlers? Like, this is mind-blowing to me. So that was kind of where it began. And then every TV station I went to, I was like, hey, guys, you know that Raw's in town in a month. Like, we should probably reach out to WWE and have someone on here just selfishly so I could meet a wrestler and, you know, do an interview. They were always at first done just on TV. And in 2010, I took a job in Cleveland as an entertainment reporter for the CBS affiliate. And I just, you know, I took with me that same idea of like, if wrestling's in town, wrestling should be on our TV show and I should be the one who's doing the interview. And I realized, well, we would have them in the studio and we would do the interview. And then, you know how this is, it turns into a, 20 second soundbite, yeah, right. which is basically like Raw's in town, tickets start at $20 and you'll see this person, this person and this person. And I was like, well, but I did a whole like five or 10 or 15 minute interview, which I thought had interesting questions as a fan. I'm sure another fan out there would appreciate this. Yeah. So I just randomly threw it on my YouTube channel, which had like three subscribers at the time and thought this has to live somewhere. Some other wrestling fan will come across this accidentally and on YouTube and they'll appreciate this. And that was honestly it. This happened in February of 2011 that I started putting these interviews on YouTube. And it was like actually like later that year that an interview I did with The Miz, he was about to throw the first pitch at the Indians game. And I did a quick interview with him and he said something along the lines of CM Punk's pipe bomb, which had just happened, yeah, was right. the most exciting thing in wrestling since the Attitude Era. And I went, oh, that's kind of cool. Threw this up on my YouTube channel. Someone somewhere found this. And I woke up the next day and it had 6,000 views. And I'm like, whoa, I don't even have enough. That's crazy. Yeah. Woke up the day after that, it had like 36,000 views. And I went, I think we're on to something yeah, here. blew up. So every time a wrestler was in town, I would do the 20, 30 second soundbite for TV. And then I would do the longer form interview that, would go on my YouTube channel. And that was really it. And I, I was fortunate to get some decent sound bites early on, like an interview I did with Jeff Hardy in like 2012 has over a million views. And that was really the genesis of this. It was maybe 2018 that I started actually going out of my way to make these happen, not just waiting for them to come to me, but going, well, if I can drive to this independent show that's an hour away or three hours away and do this interview, or if I can bring my camera gear to WrestleMania and maybe grab a few interviews. That's when it really started, you know, doing that snowball that you were talking about. Yeah. Well, and not other people uh, have done that. You, you, you see, you know, a lot of these really bad, you know, interviews that they grab at the memorabilia shows, the conventions, uh, Hannibal TV, uh, you know, he goes and he's one of the, one of those people that has you know, traveled around and gets these guys, but did you, was that, you know, purposeful early on that you said, that's what's going to set these uh, apart. I'm going to have the guy there and we're going to be in a more casual situation, just having a conversation. Now, I mean, my approach to interviews early on was always, I don't want them to sound like an interview. I want them to feel like two people just having a conversation. And I, I, I never liked those and I did many of them, but I never liked doing these quick hit like, two, three minute interviews and then just throwing them up on my channel. I wanted to actually get to know somebody. Mm. So that I thought that my real strength was coming from that broadcasting, that journalism background, as you're well aware of. I thought that that would really help me to be able to have a better interview than someone who was untrained and wasn't doing this every single day on TV. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know that, uh, you know, it, it's it, we talk about the frontier and you see stuff on YouTube that if as a, you know, somebody who had a very deep production background, I mean, I, st I started out producing highlight films and sweated over every frame. And now it's just you know jump cuts and boom and whatever. Yeah, yeah. But really, I do think I think that people do appreciate that, that that, uh, you know, 
not just that it sounds good, but it looks good. The, the person's in a relaxed atmosphere. They're, they're sitting even if it's in a hotel room. But, you know, I, I think that quality matters. It makes it a en- more enjoyable experience. And uh, I, I think that that's part of it. But also just the, you know, like I mentioned before, you, you have this kind of an instant rapport. And I don't know uh, if that's, you know, what, how you feel you just are when you're around people. Or, um, you know, that it's it's just something that you, you think works. You know what I mean? That uh, you can, when you when you get together with these people, to try and find something that, that connects you. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate you saying that. And thank you very much. It's, you know, it's been something that I think we, we all try to do on every level, whether it's at a party or whether it's in a job interview or whether it's in an actual interview. I think you're always looking for that common ground. And I think that... I look at some of the interviews I had early on and, you know, maybe you had the butterflies in your stomach. Not that I don't get those anymore, but I think that I thought too much of the moment as being an interview. And I'm going to put that in big air quotes here rather than just a conversation. And I think that some people go, oh, my God, I'm going to have an hour with so and so for this interview. How am I going to fill an hour? Yeah, with? I know. Yeah. But if you and I, Sean, were to go out for a beer tonight, you wouldn't be pulling into the parking lot going, oh, my God, uh, how am I going to talk to this guy for an hour? It would just flow. And I I think that I learned that early on and have tried to take that approach in every interview. Does it work every time? No, Uh, but I certainly try. I know, but if you watch these folks and uh, you see time and time again, you know, uh, like big show and says, you know, you're, you're a cool dude, you know, and, and that's not something they would say just to make somebody feel good. They wouldn't say it, you know, and, and you see that time and time again that you do have this rapport. So I think that's a great lesson for people that you can't fake it. Yeah. You, know, you just can't. And, and anybody can kind of see through that. And, uh, but for some people, it's, it's hard for them to be able to express that to other people. At some point, you just have to let go. And and I've kind of followed that. I think for a lot of my career, I was kind of that, you know, announcer. Uh, and then I finally said, you know what? This isn't working for me. Yeah. That I'm just going to be me. And if, any, and if they don't like it, well, then I'll probably be out of a job. I'll find something else to do. And it yeah. was just, it was liberating. So, yeah, I think the best thing, and, and you're so good at this, is listening. And I think that too many rookie interviewers are so concerned with what the next question is going to be that they can't even appreciate what's happening in front of them at this exact moment. So I think that the most important thing you can do is just listen to what's actually happening. And then if the interview pivots this way, you're willing to be able to pivot that way with them. Yeah. Well, I also think what's fascinating too, that a lot of people miss is, you know, let's say they're interviewing big show and he's a, he's a big wrestler and, and, they don't want to just necessarily all talk about wrestling. Yeah. You know, they, they want to talk about other things that might be happening in their lives, which are really interesting because you're going to get their passions going to come out. Yeah. You know? They may, of course, may love wrestling, but boy, loves bass fishing. So, you know, you get to yeah. start a conversation about, or they're into cars like Cena, you know, and man, they'll talk for an hour. Because, because that, that, interview with the, that interview with the big show is interesting because one of the biggest one of the biggest comments on there is he made just some offhand remark that I never even really paid attention to at the time. But he talked about how his hands are so big and his fingers are so fat because of it that he can't pick his nose. And I was like, oh, that, you know, that kind of sucks. So many people picked up on that, like, oh, my God, like he can't even pick his nose. And that would have never come out if it wasn't for this organic, you know, kind of back and forth that we had. Uh, or that, that he would have a normal size nose hole <laughs> you know, like okay but i did i thought that was hilarious that he said he uh you know some kids would come over and he'll say i can't pick my nose can you pick my nose because yeah. <laughs> you know it, it just you know people see these guys on a, a different stage and when you when you like you've said before they're just people when it comes down yeah. to they they are on a, a gigantic stage but when it comes down, man, they're they're in the backyard throwing their kids in the pool. They're going down in the grocery store with a hat on, you know, trying to pick up some, you know, ice and something for dinner. And uh, you know, when you get them in that situation, when they feel comfortable like that, does that that's the best stuff. And, and, that, and 
Go ahead. And I think that, that the interviews go well when you can approach the interview like that. You know, yeah. if you're meeting Jennifer Lopez for the first time and you're like, oh, my God, J-Lo, I just, I can't, oh, my God, this is such an, oh, I can't even believe we're doing this. Oh, okay. Oh, whew. okay. I'm right. I'm ready. I'm ready. Don't worry. Don't worry. They're sitting there going, oh, this is amateur hour. Who is this person that's interviewing me right now? Well, that was kind of like how uh, Leslie Mann was with you. I mean, she was, uh, <laughs> folks, if you haven't seen that one, uh, which, uh, went viral and she actually went on, uh, I think it was Kimmel or whatever and, and I guess issued a public apology because, uh, that, that was, uh, was it an uncomfortable situation, uh, when that happened? Because honest to God, if that would have happened with a woman, could you imagine? Oh yeah. Yeah. No. So that, so that's, let's back it up and yeah. Yeah, everyone, we got to give some context. Yeah. So in a nutshell, Dakota Johnson and Leslie Mann asked me to take my shirt off during an interview and were trying to pawn me off to their stylist off camera. Oh, he's a single guy. Hey, oh, Barbie's single. Um, so to back this up, I was waiting in that hallway getting ready to do the interview like we talked about. You know, they were doing 40 or 50 interviews that right. day. Right. And everyone walking out of their room was going, ooh, that didn't go that well. Like, Good luck with this one. And I'm like, oh, well, hopefully I can get a. I got my three. I got the three questions. Right, right. (laughs) So as soon as I walked in, Leslie Mann just started being really playful. So when the camera went on, I'm like, let's see if what we can do with this. And I'm very fortunate that I worked on a show in Miami that was a really fun entertainment show that would love this type of stuff. So I'm like, well, let's see, let's see how far we can go with this. So I just kind of, kind of kept pushing it and they kind of kept pushing the envelope with me. And next thing you know, I'm like unbuttoning my shirt for them and they're telling me to take my shirt off. And it goes back to what we were just saying about like, I wanted to push this as far as I could. And if it didn't work, the only people that would know about this moment was us in that room. And if it did work, you know, it'd be out there for everybody to see. It's also important to note this was 2016. This was before the Me Too movement. This would certainly never happen today. Uh, And I know that if the roles were reversed, it would be a very different situation. But I was a very willing participant here. And and as we have seen with our politically correct world, it is it's you know, and I'm I'm not making light of anything that has happened. It's just that our world has changed dramatically. And uh, by the way, folks, uh, Chris started the He Too movement uh, shortly after that. The <laughs> yeah, because hashtag. of that. But no, but really, uh, you know, uh, you're right. And and you said it, it was just fun. They were and you were able to open that door with them. And they, you know, they came along for the ride as well. And it, it's amazing, though, you like you said, you can't do that now. And it's, it's, oh, it's yeah. unfortunate, <laughs> but that's that's the way it is. And then two, almost two years later, I did an interview with uh, Dakota Johnson and I sat down and she kind of like looked at me a little funny and she goes, wait a second. Did Leslie Mann and I ask you to take your shirt off? And I'm like, that was me. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. That was fun. She's like, no, I'm I am so, so sorry. I'm like, no, it's okay. Like, that was one of the most fun interviews of my life. She's like, no, like on behalf of Leslie Mann and I. I'd like to apologize to you for doing that. I'm like, no, no, it's seriously, it's okay. But I think that, I don't know, she obviously felt bad about it. Uh, When you you think about all these interviews, Chris, uh, and I guess we'll let's just start with the wrestlers. What ones really stand out? Because, um, you know, Kurt Angle is, you know, not – considered like this great interview and he's not a guy that really opens up, but that was a really, you know, awesome interview you did with oh, him. And, and then also the, the completely random, how the hell did this happen with DDP? <laughs> but what, what ones, you know, and you can't, you can't name a lot of them, but what, which ones really stand out to you? Yeah. The rocks definitely at the top of that list yeah. just because, you know, he's someone that meant so much to me. I was raising the people's eyebrow and yelling, it doesn't matter at people in my high school. So to be able to, spend time with him and see how generous he was with his time. I've learned a lot. There's been a lot of takeaways, including that moment on the red carpet where I asked him, you know, like your goal was to play in the NFL and it didn't work out for you, you know? And he said something in that moment that really just stuck with me. And he said, sometimes in life, things don't happen. And when they don't, it can be the best thing 
to never happen. It's like, oh, that's so true. Yeah. So that's one, uh, you know, I was really fortunate to get a bunch of time with John Cena last year at WrestleMania through a, a mutual friend. And the interview was only supposed to be 10 minutes. And at the 10 minute mark, I went to wrap it up and he's like, yeah, you got more time. Keep going. <laughs> okay. And then I go to wrap it up a few minutes later. And he's like, he got time for one more question. So that was so cool that I had the only interview he did during WrestleMania. And he had a piece of advice there that was basically control the controllable. And to be able to hear someone like him put it in such simple terms, but especially yeah. what's going on in the world right now. So many people are focused on all these other things that they have zero control over. And the thing that you always have control over is how you're going to react to something. So yeah. that was a big, like, cool moment, cool interview, but just a big life takeaway for me. So those are probably the top. And then in terms of just celebrity interviews, Tom Cruise, I think, is one of the best actors working. He's one of the last remaining movie stars in the world. And I interviewed him on the red carpet, Mission yeah. Impossible 6, in Paris, in the shadow of the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. It doesn't get any better. Than Did that. you get in front of the camera after that and just go? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. Mic drop. I don't, I mean, really, there's the, the, the there's the, uh, you know, the Eiffel Tower behind me. And that, and yes, that was Tom Cruise. Yeah. That was, that was such a surreal thing. Cause after I did, it, did the interview with The Rock, I was like, Tom Cruise, the next person. I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but I'm going to keep putting it out there. And you know how red carpets work. You're on the red carpet. It's like, it's hurry up and wait. And then we're standing there for like two hours waiting for the red carpet to begin. Tom Cruise finally shows up. He's taking pictures with fans and signing autographs and just being awesome because that's what he does. Yeah. Then he starts working his way down the red carpet. And I'm like, okay, let's see how many other outlets are ahead of me. Oh, there's like 30 outlets ahead of me. Okay. If he does two-ish, three-ish minutes with each one, okay, I'm an hour away from talking to Tom Cruise now. Yeah. And as he keep, kept getting a few feet closer with every interview, I kept going, Oh my God, like this, this is about to happen. And that was actually what made it, I don't know, that much more nerve wracking is. Yeah. I was like, what's my first question? What am I going to ask? Yeah. Right. Am I, I, I just, I just heard him answer a question that was kind of like the yeah. question that I was thinking. Do yeah. I still ask that question or do I go with another question here? And I honestly can't even remember what we talked about because <laughs> it just kind of went by like that. Blur. But yeah. yeah, I think that was, uh, that was another one of those for me. Yeah. Unbelievable. So, uh, you know, like I said, you're, you're just getting started, but uh, uh, you talk a lot about, uh, you know, having these goals. I mean, I think one of your your, your basic slogan is uh, vague goals, vague results. Um, what what advice do you have for people that, uh, you know, we have a lot of people listen. I hear from them all the time and it's not even necessarily. And I and I always say, you know, it's not about doesn't you don't have to be somebody who wants to get into broadcasting is whatever yeah. your passion is you you need to follow it and and yeah. uh you can't give up after the first 10 times i mean you're going to have people in your life that are going to tell you no i mean i have a son who uh, wants to get into broadcasting and i told him you know i sent 70 tapes out when i got out of college and got <laughs> one uh one, not even a phone call i think i got a letter <laughs> that said <laughs> Uh, check back with us in three months. I think it was in Vegas or something like that. And, and, and I, that was, they didn't, when I waited, to, I, you know, I didn't wait three months to get back to them and I didn't get anything. So I think what happens a lot today, somebody says no and they go, okay, that didn't work. Okay, now what? And yeah, so no, I, uh, your advice as far as when these people coming up and you, you know, you get asked, I'm sure, all the time like I do. I just think it's important to figure out where you want to be. And I mm. think that too many people, I say vague goals get vague results because I think people aren't specific enough about where they end up, want to end up. And I don't just mean that in your career. I mean that with every aspect of your life. We hear every January 1st, a whole bunch of people that go, I want to lose some weight this year. Well, if you lose one pound this year, you have lost some weight. And you lost have weight. Achieved, yeah, you've achieved yeah. your goal. And I think that it's important to be specific with what you want. And that allows you to go, okay, well, I'm at point A. I'm at, I'm at, you know, mile marker number one and I want to be at mile marker number 100. What are all the mile markers along the way to get there? And I think it's important to know like how to get there. And it's even more important to celebrate the little wins along the way. And I yeah. think that too many people go, well, I want to be an actor, but I'm not Will Smith. Yeah. Well, 
Yeah, well, Will Smith wasn't Will Smith when he started out either. I want to be a podcaster, but I'm not going to be like Joe Rogan. I mean, look at him. Well, if you watch episode 74 of Joe Rogan, the Joe Rogan Experience, or episode 374, it's kind of garbage, you know, but he just kind of kept going with it, and it's evolved into what he has now. So I think it's important to get those benchmarks along the way, but know where you're heading. Otherwise, it's like getting into a car and aimlessly driving and hope you're going to get to that destination. Yeah, and you you said, I mean, when you started this, we had three subscribers, and it was a while ago. I mean, really, when you when you think about it, uh, it could be that way for a while. But yeah. if it's something you really believe in, uh, you need to stick with it. And uh, I know that we, we touched on your other passion, but really with fishing. But tell me about Woo Tungsten. Woo Tungsten Fishing. That's right. Woo Tungsten. Because, and how do you balance this, and what is it? what is your involvement? I mean... Well, I'm a co-owner, co-founder. Yeah. Uh, my business partner was also my tournament fishing partner for many, many years. One of my best Which friends. Which also you fished competitively. Yeah, yeah. I fished. Uh, I don't do it as much anymore. But, yeah. yeah, I would fish in bass tournaments every summer growing up from about age 14 until oh, until recently. And I fished in many professional tournaments. I was on the amateur side. This was something that I, I was just so drawn to. And, the cool thing about this, because I know a lot of people listening to this are like, you can fish professionally for bass. The cool thing about this is the deeper you get into whatever passion it is that you have or whatever subject it is that you're interested in, you realize that there's a whole bunch of other people that are just as crazy about the same thing as you are. So we we were looking to buy some of these weights. And basically, if you're fishing with a plastic craw or worm or something they float because plastic you know just floats so you would put a weight on the front of it to sink it down to the bottom where the fish are it was lead for many many years but lead's not very good for the environment so the alternative now is tungsten which is a smaller denser denser metal better for the environment but also um, better and more sensitive for fishing so we went to buy these things and we went you know what if we started just making them I think we can have like a pretty good margin on this. And we're like, well, I don't think we can just make these and like throw them out there into the world. But if we really branded this well and we really put our heart and our soul into this, I think this could really be something. And that was four years ago. And now it's grown into, you know, a a pretty decent sized company that we're working on every single day to try to make bigger. And somehow you balance it all. (laughs) (laughs) Trying, you know, And I think that, you know, I think a lot of people know me for the wrestling interviews I've done, or maybe you've seen one of my other celebrity interviews, but I want to kind of do a little bit of everything. I want to be able to have the YouTube interviews and the podcast, but I've done a little bit of acting over here. I want to be a TV host over here, entrepreneur running this fishing company. I just want to be able to have a bunch of different interests out there and to be able to be great at all of it, or at least hope to. Yeah, and uh, you know, you were with uh, Deco Drive, which was a, a show out of Miami, uh, folks. That uh, very popular, and I think you guys were on every, seven days a week. I don't know if you yeah. work seven days a week, but you know. Uh, di- but did you get to a point? Was it you're still working for somebody? Mm-hmm. Uh, and did this finally free you that you could say, you know what, I can do these other things and and be on my own? And, and you know, folks, along the way, sometimes you got to work for people to get to where you want to go and, and what you should do is gain that experience. But uh, is that where you got to the point of where you're just like, you know, it's, I'm still working for somebody. Yeah. Well, I, I loved that show. I still yeah. do love that show. And I it afforded me the opportunity to travel the world and interview some of the biggest celebrities in the world and also do some really cool local segments like swimming with an alligator and you know, trapeze school. I just realized I wanted to do something bigger and I was getting these offers to do these other things and my contract wouldn't allow me to do them. And it was, it just came down to like, I'm going to keep getting these offers to do these other things that I'm passionate about doing. And I, I can't do it here. So something's going to have to give one day. And the YouTube channel was continuing to get bigger and bigger. And I was doing it in my free time, or I was doing an interview and then going to work afterwards, or I was flying myself on weekends to go do these interviews. And then taking a red eye back, landing at like six in the morning, sleeping for two hours and then going into work. Jeez. And, you know, I loved it. I loved that grind. 
but I just kind of realized that I want to do something more. And the, it, the cool thing about being on a station like that is everybody in Miami knew that show and watched it at some point. But I wanted to reach an audience that was bigger than that. And when I was, you know, it would always be so honored. I I'd always feel so honored when someone in an airport in London or L.A. would come up to me with an accent and be like, oh, I watch your interviews all the time. And I'm like, wow. Yeah. And as you know, as a, you know, as a local news personality, when you go to your local Walmart, you know, you're going to get recognized. Yeah. But when you go outside of that bubble of that, you don't expect to be yeah. recognized. If I go to Phoenix, nobody. <laughs> <laughs> but wrestling fans will be everywhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But but yeah, that was I think that was what was so cool is I was shooting these videos on my iPhone and getting more recognition and more views than going to a TV studio. And I was yeah. like, I think I'm on to something here. And I just wanted to double down on it. That was that was really all it was. Are there is where is this all leading to? Uh, is it or are you just taking the ride and say where it goes, or are you got something you know something that's you see in the distance? What's leading to? I was actually supposed to move to Los Angeles in March. I was I had everything packed up. Oh. I was going to move on March 16th, and that's kind of the weekend when you know stuff's really started getting serious with coronavirus. Yeah. So I'm moving to Los Angeles next month. And the goal is to audition for lots of different TV shows uh, as a host. And that's what I want to do. I want to host a yeah. national show while also still being able to do the YouTube channel and the podcast. I've been in some local commercials recently, so I'd love to do some more acting. But I just want to be able to wake up every day just pumped up and jacked to go to work. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, when I lay my head on the pillow, go, I'm, I'm proud of what I've accomplished today. That's awesome. Well, Chris, uh, you know, I have no doubt in my mind that I don't think you're gonna have to wait till 2038 to get those million. <laughs> 2037. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think it's gonna happen sooner than than later. But I tell you, I I, I really enjoy talking to you, and we had a chance to uh, meet at the NWA tapings, and uh, I really I hope that that people listening to this or watching it. Uh, Take a lesson from you because really you're, you light up a room and, and, uh, like you said, when you come into that room and it's not just if you're going to do an interview with a celebrity, when you walk in, that's where it starts. That's where people, you know, get to know you. But, uh, it's, it, it, it does me good to know there's people out there that are going to carry on this business and they're going to do it in a way where they're going to do it just the way they want to. So keep at it. Well, I gotta say, when I, when I met you at the NWA power taping and you knew who I was, I was like, I can't believe this is real life right now. That was, uh, that was actually quite an honor. So, uh, and, and to be on your show right now is great. Sorry about the technical difficulties that I had earlier that I'm, I'm not good with the uh, virtual interviews. My, my style is being able to do these in person. Well, I really want to thank you for coming on, man. And I, I, I hope we run into each other down the road. I'm sure we will. And thank you again for the opportunity, Sean. Now, uh, Chris is a guy, and I hope that, uh, you know, and I, I, I really like when we do an episode that when I finish the conversation, I just feel as though it's, uh, you know, very inspiring. And Chris is definitely one of those people. I mean, you can just get the feeling this guy is always, there's nothing, uh, you know, phony about him when he is, uh, you know, doing these conversations. And I think that's why uh, these uh, personalities that he interviews and uh, perhaps you've already heard a few of them if not you should check out his channel but he has this instant rapport with people because it's it's very genuine the conversations he has and he asks them questions that you know a lot of people don't think of or might even think oh they wouldn't want to be interested in talking about that uh, he, he seems to be able to find that uh, that vein with these people it doesn't matter what walk of entertainment they're from uh, he 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 does it, and uh, that's why I think his professional wrestling interviews are just uh, so well received, with uh, many of them hundreds of thousands of views. I mean, I think he's got uh, somewhere in the neighborhood upwards of uh, seventy million views or something like that of his uh, his videos. And we'll check out a few of them, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. But um, you know, he's he's one of these guys that is going to be shaping the future of how. Uh, entertainment is done, how professional wrestling is covered. Uh, a lot of these uh, talents these days, they're very savvy to this. 
Um, and I, as I have learned, you know, working with some of these guys with the NWA, uh, the youngsters are very in tune with social media. Uh, you look at some of these guys uh, with, uh, God, all of them basically who are with AEW. Uh, young Bucks launched their own career. Basically, they didn't need anybody. They did it all on their own. And that's just one example. But they all are very in tune with uh, how to reach people. And it is a lot more intimate than it ever used to be because you can do a direct contact. I mean, you can answer a guy on Twitter and just, man, it goes like, he just answered my question right there, bing. And uh, that's that's the way it's going to be. And uh, Chris is uh, certainly one of those guys, which is funny because here we have all these technical problems, and it was on his end. It wasn't mine. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> dude. Uh, and it's great because, uh, you know, he texts me, uh, you know, a couple hours later, and says, oh, got it all straightened out, you know. <laughs> like, well, I'm glad you're, I was your guinea pig with the new microphone. But uh, I, I'm kidding, of course. But, um, you know, it, it really is. It is a new age. And uh, Chris Van Vliet is one of those who's leading the way, and he's going to be tremendously successful. Um, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one saying that, but just from my view, uh, he is uh, he's blazing a trail. Um, and uh, we're going to see, because of when this is all over, this insaneness, this craziness that's going on, uh, we'll get back to business. It may be a while. Who knows how long it's going to be before you see more people uh, in uh, arenas, uh, you know, cheering on uh, these uh, wrestlers in the ring. But it will happen. And it's not going away. And uh, it's going to change. You know, things adjust. There's all these, uh, you know, I had a conversation the other day with uh, some people that are, are well-connected to the industry, and, in, and it's going in a whole new direction. And you see it uh, with the new, the new streaming uh, devices that they've got going. Even now, uh, NBC Universal has got Peacock, and, uh, you know, they've got these other ones that are, that are uh, coming out um, that you see. And that's, that's the way of the world. It's not uh, broadcast television. Uh, that, is, that is dying. But you're always going to want to be entertained, and you're, it's not going away. I mean, it's going to happen. It's just going to be done differently. And people like Chris Van Vliet and uh, these other young broadcasters are going to lead the way. All right. I uh, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, got a big announcement coming up next week. I will hold that until uh, we get there. But uh, I just want to tell you, um, thank you. Uh, you know, I'm just going to simply thank you for... Uh, hanging with me all this time and we've been doing this quite a while we've got a number of episodes uh, in our library now it's hard to believe man three years but uh, as I sign off here though I just want to say thank you and please stay safe alright I'm Sean Mooney and I am out